Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Market Journal. I'm Bryce Duskit. Sure hope you're having a great start to the month of August thus far. Before you know it, we'll be in the fields for the fall harvest. Speaking of the fields, current conditions in those fields vary across the region. USDA's weekly crop progress report put 61% of the Nebraska corn crop in the good to excellent condition. Soybean condition came in at just 60, 56% in the good to excellent condition. Meanwhile, winter wheat harvest is in the home stretch with just shy of 90% complete as of this past Sunday. Coming up on today's program, we're going to be taking a look at soybean diseases that producers should be looking out for during the latter half of the growing season. Darren Newsom is also going to join us to discuss the markets. We'll get to both of those segments coming up. But first, let's head back into the field for UNL South Central Ag Lab, where we were at last week covering that annual field day. While we were there, we had the chance to speak with Nebraska Extension entomologist Bob Wright to discuss what pests might be a concern out in the fields for producers this time of year. On this week's In the Field update, we're out at a field day catching up with Nebraska Extension entomologist Bob Wright. Bob, great to see you. Yeah, good. One of the things you're doing uh, at field days and, and casual conversations, I suppose, with producers are, is reintroducing a topic that may be something uh, that some producers' grandfathers dealt with. What is that? That's the European corn borer, and historically it's been one of the most important corn insects, probably even more than corn rootworms in the past, partly because it's relatively hard to control with insecticides. And uh, people who grow corn, grew corn in the 80s and 90s can remember years where we had high corn borer populations and we had a lot of stock breakage and ear dropping late in the season due to the corn borers tunneling in the stalks and, and ear shanks. And the uh, first BT corns were introduced in 1996 and they were highly effective against corn borers. And they were, they were rapidly adopted because people could see the relative advantage compared to using insecticides. And we noticed that our corn borer population dropped uh, pretty soon after BT corn started being introduced. And uh, entomologists across the Midwest shared data and we could document statistically that as the BT corn acre in a state uh, went up, the corn borer populations in our black light traps went down. And so they've been down uh, pretty much in, in a lot of areas. But the last four or five years, we've been seeing more corn borers in some areas, particularly if people are growing popcorn or food grade corn or uh, corn that BT corn maybe just doesn't have above ground traits. And uh, so we're seeing some pockets where we're seeing economic populations of corn borers in those crops that don't have BT in them. And so we wanna re reintroduce some of the information we used to talk about a lot in terms of how to identify, how to scout for corn borers, what's the best timing of controls, those types of issues, uh, what biological controls are active, uh, those type of issues. For our non-production ag audience today, you bring up BT corn introduced in the late 1990s. Explain yeah. exactly what you mean by that. Okay, BT is an abbreviation for Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a naturally occurring bacteria. And it, uh, this, this type of bacteria produces some proteins that are toxic to insects. They're very specific to insects. 
They're a lot safer than our traditional uh, insecticides, which are broad spectrum. And the protein has been introduced or en engineered to be produced in corn and now some other crops. And different strains have different activity against different insects. There's one strain that's active against corn borers. Uh, more recently, we had a strain that's active against rootworms. That's also in a lot of our corn as well. We've had more trouble with uh, rootworms developing resistance to the BTs. Corn borers have, have not developed resistance to the BTs uh, in Nebraska. Uh, possibly because they have a, they feed on a lot of other crops uh, that, that don't have BT. They can be in sorghum, they can be in potatoes, a lot of vegetable crops, uh, uh, a lot of garden crops, and wild wild hosts as well. So anyway, we are starting to see them showing up more in some some areas, particularly if you grow in an isolated area, popcorn or food grade corn over years, they probably will will build up and it's something we're getting more questions about. So we wanted to talk about that. Yeah, appreciate you giving us that overview on that. Real quick, I guess, what other challenges might a, a grower that's uh, growing popcorn or some of those other specialty corn varieties you mentioned, what other challenges might they face? Well, I guess the main thing is just uh, being aware of what insects are possible problems. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, they're, they're the same as uh, field corn, I guess one issue is those are higher value crops, so you may need to protect them more than you would field corn because the losing a bushel of, of white food grade corn is, is worth more than regular yellow corn. And so you need to be more careful about uh, looking for insects. The other issue is that some of these ear feeding insects can increase the likelihood of ear molds, and that's obviously important for food grade corn, uh, something to be concerned about. Now, as a reminder, there are several more educational opportunities and field days for you to catch before the, before the summer comes to an end. If you'd like to see what events are taking place in your area, don't forget to bookmark the Nebraska Extension Events calendar on your computer. You can find a direct link with, to that calendar along with this story. Find them both on the Market Journal website. Moving on now, this year one important question for cow-calf producers to be asking is, could heifers have more potential value than a steer? While bulls are important genetically, cows will provide and deliver the vast majority of what the calf needs when it comes to from conception to weaning. Market Journal's Bill Dodd is standing by with more on this topic. Bill? As cow-calf producers head out to tag new calves, many may prefer to find a new bull calf as opposed to a heifer. This is due to the fact that most bull calves will become a steer and will produce more weight, bringing in more money per pound when selling at weaning. However, in some cases, heifers may have more potential value than a steer. Yeah, so I think most cow-calf producers, you know, if they think about the value of calves they sell at weaning, uh, that bull calf that's born is going to become a steer. He's going to be worth, you know, $150, even $200 more potentially than the heifer mate born at the same time in a typical market. Now, sometimes those things change, especially in the market we're moving into now uh, with a short cow herd inventory. Heifer calves are going to have more value, but heifers really provide a lot of opportunities for cow-calf producers. You can sell them, of course, at weaning. Uh, you re can retain them, and then you can breed them. Uh, you can sell the opens, the non-pregnant heifers as a feeder heifer. Those bred heifers then can enter your herd, produce calves for you, and then they're gaining in value, especially as you look at the value of bred females right now. Uh, then you have the option to sell them as a bred female as well. The thing that also offers some opportunity with heifers is that their breeding stock. So from a tax purposes standpoint, if you retain them more than two years, 
when you sell them, uh, they're taxed at a capital gains rate rather than as ordinary income. So that's something to visit with your tax accountant about, but that can have some pretty significant tax advantages as compared to a steer calf that would not be recognized as breeding stock. Naturally, the cattle market and long-term cattle cycle factor into these decisions, as well as the structure of any particular cow-calf operation. We typically see what we call a cattle cycle in the United States, where we see cow herd numbers build with inventory as cattle prices go up because cow-calf producers are being more profitable. So if you're more profitable, you want to have more calves to sell, so you grow your cow herd inventory. Um, you know, there's some things that influence that as well, things like drought and things like that, that result in cow numbers dropping. But then as cow-calf producers run into having uh, more unprofitable years as they have more calves to sell, typically then they reduce their cow herd number. As the cow herd number reduces, you have left calves to sell, which eventually drives prices back up. So it's this long-term cycle. Right now, we are moving into a period of time where cow herd inventories have gone down for a number of reasons, both cattle prices and drought. And so we're in a period of time now where cow-calf producers are going to be in a strong position and prices are going to probably be higher uh, because we're in a shorter inventory. So feed yards and those who harvest cattle for beef are going to be looking for cattle, which they're going to be shorter in supply. That drives prices up. So as you think about your cow-calf operation, being able to have some flexibility there in terms of thinking about how I market cattle, when I market cattle, um, you know, maybe varying the amount of replacement heifers you keep, being able to sell more uh, bred females when market prices really are demanding those can really change profitability. It's worth taking some time to sit down and look at as you continue to think about the prices that we're going to see in the next few years, what cattle are going to have the most value. And then as you think about your own operation, as you think about the cattle you have in inventory, how can you capture value from what the market wants? And, you know, that might be an opportunity to do something different than you traditionally would, but don't miss the opportunity. Put a number to the value of the cattle in your herd, what's happening with their value, what's going to happen with depreciation, and can you find a way to make that work for you financially? Depending on the structure of your cow-calf operation, there could be outstanding opportunities to capitalize on the value of heifers when working with market conditions and capitalizing on the tax advantages. When taking these factors into account, there are good opportunities for cow-calf producers to leverage a heifer's potential value. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. Alrighty, thank you very much for that story, Bill. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this topic, Aaron has an informative article and a podcast that's available on the website. It is beef.unl.edu. Well, let's turn our attention now over to the markets. And joining us this week is Bar Chart Senior Analyst, Darren Newsom. Hey, Darren, how's the month of August treating you? Oh, it's going well, Bryce. Uh, again, last month of summer, looking, looking ahead to fall already. Well, let's uh, look ahead, I guess, uh, break down what's happening in the grain markets. We've got a report this week. You don't like to spend a lot of time on that. We'll respect that. Just talk about, I guess, what you're seeing in the markets uh, as you and I have this conversation ahead of that report. Your thoughts? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is, I know everyone gets excited about, you know, this is some sort of fundamental read on things, but, you know, the real fundamentals in the market, if we look at basis and future spreads, across the board, 
corn, soybeans, wheat, we're seeing the commercial side grow less bullish and in some cases much more bearish, particularly in soft red winter wheat. So we know that the commercial side, again, is growing more comfortable with 2023 production of corn and soybeans. We don't know what acres are actually. We don't know what yield's going to be. But because of the way the weather's played out, say through the last half of July and the first half of August, we've seen some, you know, we've seen some carry building in these spreads. Uh, and it's interesting to watch. And, and so we know that the, that the overall idea that production's getting larger, whatever whatever the you know numbers turn out to be, uh, certainly seems to be the you know the driving force in these markets these days. Yeah, it's quite an interesting year as we look at it. Uh, the the shift in weather patterns we've had as we uh, cross the halfway mark through uh, through summer for for some folks, it was kind of toward the late part of July before rain started falling. And others, I guess, to that point, Darren, it's tough to try to predict as uh, some try to do this week what's going to happen because we haven't really had a year like this in a while where rains really kicked in. Uh, here in the month of August for many of us, have we? No, it, it has been a while, but I think we do have a template for what we can expect. You know, all we have to do is look south uh, and to see what happened in Brazil uh, in January and February as their weather pattern moved from La Nina to El Nino. All of a sudden, you know, they went from having a, you know, what was expected to be a good crop to a record crop. Now, you know, the U.S. isn't going to have a record soybean crop. It's just not going to happen. The acres weren't there. We knew that in February, you know, watching the Dece corn, excuse me, the no bean Dece corn spread, we knew that acres had been, been bought by December corn. So we're not going to have a record U.S. soybean crop, but we're going to have a larger soybean crop than expected. And, you know, at once we get supplies tucked away uh, here this fall, the issue is going to continue to be demand. We're already seeing a slowdown in demand, despite the fact that Russia's not Russia, but China's hog herd has just exploded in size uh, so much to the point where they have an overproduction. They have oversupplies at this point. The U.S. still isn't moving any soybeans and it, not moving a lot of soybean meal. So, you know, the, the, the problem is going to continue to be demand, particularly once we start to increase our supplies once again. Darren, I want to toss a viewer question to you that uh, came in this week. They were, the viewer was curious if we get your thoughts. Is $6 corn completely in the, in the rearview mirror out of possibility at this point, or perhaps what factors could lead to $6 corn again? Nothing is ever impossible, and we learned that with crude oil going to negative numbers a number of years ago, uh, negative price a number of years ago. So we know that anything can happen. Do I think we're going to see $6 corn anytime soon? No, but what could happen? Let's say some of these rainstorms that continue to move through. Let's say we have a derecho uh, that seems to happen, say, some point here in August or early September, and just flattens a wide uh, swath of the crop across the Midwest. That could certainly spark some life. Or if we start to see some export business again, I think we're really going to have to see uh, U.S. exports pick up. Uh, probably not as important in corn as it would be in soybeans. But, you know, if we see some life on the export side of corn, that could help. We're also going to, have to see feed demand start to pick up again. And right now, that just doesn't look like it's going to happen. Well, every time we have you here on Market Journal, we like to toss a couple of wheat questions out to you, our producers, uh, wheat producers like when we do that. So I guess I'll toss it to you on that. You noted something interesting when it comes to spreads for one of the wheat markets. What was that? Yeah, the, the, the key here is the soft red winter, the Chicago soft red winter market. We're looking at the September, December spread. Uh, it has been running 90% or greater for, for a couple of weeks now. And the CME's got a running average. Uh, they're doing their calculation at this point, and it runs through August 25th, that if 
if that uh, percent of full carry is greater than 80%, the average is greater than 80% as of August 25th, then we see the higher, then we need to see the higher storage rates uh, based on the variable storage rate program picking in, uh, kicking in. So right now it's sitting at about 83%. That's going to be a problem uh, for the commercial side of the wheat market. Certainly not something that happens if uh, if a market is bullish. You don't see this type of carry in a market uh, if we're tight supplies or have strong demand. So regardless of everything happening over in the Black Sea, all the headlines and this and that and ports coming under attack, the situation for the U.S. software and winter wheat market continues to grow more bearish. Uh, supply and demand gets to be more cumbersome. All right, Darren, I want to give you the final word, particularly as it relates to marketing new crop. What advice do you want to leave our viewers with today? I think right now we need to be in a sell the rallies sort of sort of mentality. Uh, you know, we, we are going to still see some rallies. We don't know where they're going to come from, what's going to spark them. Uh, even if it's post USDA, if we get some sort of knee jerk reaction, I don't think we're in a buy the dips kind of situation at this point. Certainly, it looks like production's going up. And until we get our hand on, on demand, find some new demand globally, uh, it looks like we're going to be dealing with a different situation than we've had the last two or three years. Good stuff there with Darren. We do appreciate his time. You heard me mention that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they came out with some reports on Friday, including the WASDE. A detailed breakdown with analysis can be found under the Markets tab at RuralRadioNetwork.com. Well, lots has changed since 1978. Certainly the landscape across the state has, as have different crops becoming more popular in Nebraska. When it comes to the crop, the top crops in the state, the order of their popularity has changed a bit over the past 45 years. In 1978, corn was king, and that remains true today. But alfalfa and all hay, as well as winter wheat and sorghum, are all ahead of soybeans on that list. Today, with 5.5 million acres planted, soybeans have slipped into the number two spot on that list. You can get all the details of the top crops planted here in the Cornhusker State, along with some of those crops no longer making the list in the August issue of the Nebraska Farmer. What well, is time now to check in on weather with Nebraska Extension Ag Climatologist and Market Journal Chief Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Eric, what's on your mind this week when it comes to weather? Well, thanks, Bryce. I think we should be looking forward to some thunderstorms across central and eastern Nebraska on Sunday. More on that in a little bit. Let's start off like we usually do with the drought monitor. Some good news report this week. We've had more removal of exceptional drought and a lot of improvement across western Nebraska. Um, again, unfortunately, we still have some D4 across Clay, Hamilton, uh, Merrick, and Nance counties. The good news, though, is we've seen a lot of removal D4 across northeastern Nebraska. And if you were in southeastern Wayne, northeastern Stanton, or very northwestern Cumming counties, this is the first time that you've been out of D4 since August 30th of last year. So that's something to celebrate. That's good news. Things are starting to look up even there. Again, in places where we are seeing D4 conditions across eastern Nebraska, this is from Clay County. This is very unfortunate to see in mid-August. Again, this is uh, from Jenny Reese, an extension educator. Um, but for the most part, with the exception of some of this part of the state, we've actually seen a lot of improvement across the last three months. And then particularly across western Nebraska, we saw a lot of this improvement uh, late spring, early summer. But again, this just shows that we have actually really started making some meaningful improvement across parts of eastern Nebraska. So this is, generally speaking, good news. It's also incredibly good news. A lot of times we don't get this kind of improvement in the summer. Vegetation conditions, again, very, very uh, healthy vegetation, waste conditions here across most of western Nebraska. Things generally are pretty good in the southeastern part of the state, in the very northeastern corner. Again, our poorest conditions tend to be kind of between Grand Island and York and, and further south toward the Kansas border, where we've seen 
uh, D3, D4 conditions pretty much the entire summer. I want to show you this map of the one month change in veg dry. I think this is important because it really kind of shows you where maybe things are going in terms of crop yields. Again, this is not a perfect predictor of crop yields, but I think it's encouraging that we have seen improvement across a lot of the eastern part of the state, especially including the rain-fed southeastern part of the state. Uh, the only one area of the state we haven't seen improvement or seen some degradation is here is across parts of south-central Nebraska where we've seen some of the worst stress and the worst photos. And across the Corn Belt, we've definitely seen some degradation across eastern Iowa and up into Minnesota where it's been very dry. In terms of seven-day precipitation, very good precipitation amounts. Uh, wet Wake and North Platte, uh, Dundee, and Hitchcock counties. Some places had four to five inches of precipitation. Uh, driest places are kind of the Highway 34 corridor between Seward and going east into Cass County. Soil moisture conditions across the state mostly are about where they should be or on the wet side for this time of year. And in terms of our week ahead highlights, again, so I think we uh, have a very good chance of precipitation across central and eastern Nebraska on Sunday, kind of throughout the day. There might be a couple different rounds of thunderstorms. There is some severe storm risk, so I would pay attention to your uh, local forecast carefully on Sunday. Uh, I do think this is probably the best chance of widespread precipitation throughout the week, though. I think we're going to be quite dry in the western third of the state this week. I think things look quite good on Monday. Seasonal temperatures will probably be the rule uh, midweek. Probably warmer as you get the panhandle. I think we'll definitely have some days in well into the 90s. It looks like we should have a cold front coming through the state somewhere around Thursday, maybe early Friday. And I think that will really knock our temperatures back again for a couple of days. And I think we could even look to some lows in the 50s as we get into next weekend. Unfortunately, I think this is, that will be somewhat short-lived as models are starting to get a little bit more bullish on building a ridge back into the, into the central part of the U.S. What that probably means is that we're going to start seeing temperatures that are a bit above average or maybe even somewhat above average for a while. Again, this might be something that would persist into Labor Day weekend, and I think we are starting to see a bit of a drier signal as well. Back to you. All righty, thank you very much for that update, Eric. We appreciate it. Finally today, this late in the season, crop diseases are still a concern for crop producers. This week, we invited UNL plant pathologist Dylan Mangel back into the studio to give us a rundown on what soybean producers should be keeping an eye on as we inch closer to the fall harvest. Dylan, great to have you back here on Market Journal. Thanks for having me. Well, a couple weeks uh, since your last appearance on Market yeah. Journal, more things happening out in those soybean fields that producers should be looking for. Sudden death syndrome. A lot of people are encouraged to scout for that this time of year. What's your advice on that front? Yeah, so, I mean, we had early season stresses in these crops. The water came, and then uh, the plants, uh, some have been infected by sudden death syndrome, especially in areas of, that have had a history of sudden death syndrome in those crops. But it's tricky. It's not just as simple as uh, going out there and saying, yep, this is sudden death yep. syndrome. Why is that? Yeah, so we get those bright foliar symptoms with sudden death, death syndrome. They show up. Uh, those upper leaves of the plant are going to develop chlorosis or yellowing between the veins. Uh, and if you've seen the symptom, you probably remember it. So those, that yellowing will dry down and then uh, turn necrotic and die on those leaves. So it's a very bright symptom, and you'll see it if it's out there. The problem is several diseases can cause similar symptoms. And really it's because that symptom is just associated with lack of water making it up to those leaves. So if you see those symptoms up there, don't just jump to the conclusion that it's sudden death syndrome. Uh, try and take the time and figure out what that is. And making that time investment is important because you're maybe going to use that information to make a monetary investment in your next season's crop. What are some of the ways to confirm that this is perhaps sudden death syndrome? So one of the biggest um, 
confusions is sudden death syndrome and brown stem rot. And it's actually quite easy to tell them apart if you take and pull one of those plants and then split that stem open. The pith of a sudden death syndrome plant uh, or the center of that stem is going to be healthy. It's going to look relatively healthy. A uh, brown stem rot plant, on the other hand, is going to be completely rotted out inside of that stem. So if you just take a couple minutes to split them, it should be pretty clear what you're dealing with there. Uh, but if you're going to make a large investment in a seed treatment next time you rotate the soybean, uh, it might be worth getting uh, a lab to verify those results. Uh, so one of the labs that, that we use here, of course, is the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic. Um, it's, it's relatively easy to send samples into there, and it's definitely affordable compared to the investment that you're going to make. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about brown stem rot and uh, some, of, some of the treatment options perhaps on that, on that uh, disease. Yeah, so when you're considering these, uh, there's definitely seed treatments available for, for many of these options. Um, really, you want to consider that field history and what you've had in the past because we can't treat these in season. So you've yeah. got to think ahead about what you've dealt with. Uh, we put out publications, uh, Nebraska Extension does, there's also the Crop Protection Network that puts out treatment guides uh, that outline the effectiveness based on what data has shown for different crop or for different seed treatments. Um, so you can look on, on those websites and, and find some of those tools. You can also talk to your local advisors and see what they're recommending in your area for mm -hmm. these. Always a good resource there. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about soybean cyst nematodes. That's uh, always uh, something popular. I'm sure you get a lot of questions this time yep. of year about it. Yeah, so soybean cyst nematode, it's one of those diseases that can steal a lot of yield without showing above ground symptoms, sometimes up to 30% yield loss with no noticeable above ground symptoms. So uh, while in most cases it's much less, it, it goes under the radar and we just don't notice it's there. And the reason it does that is because you can water your way through soybean cyst nematode damage. If you put enough water on it, you're just not going to see the symptoms and you're going to do all right. The problem this year is we lack that soil moisture. It's dry and uh, we're seeing this the stunting associated with soybean cyst nematode show up early. So right now we're receiving a, a lot of samples into the lab um, for verification of soybean cyst nematode at a time of year where we normally wouldn't see that volume of samples come in. You kind of mentioned uh, it's abnormal to have that volume for this time of year. Mm -hmm. It's been a, a weird and wacky growing season, particularly for those of us in eastern Nebraska where we didn't see a lot of rain in the month, uh, months of May and June and then yep. July. Everything kind of switched around. I guess uh, people might be seeing some various uh, different things pop up this year because of yep. that. Nebraska Extension always a good resource, though, to get those questions answered. Absolutely. Yeah, with that additional moisture later in the season, starting on stressed plants, we really don't know what's going to show up. So definitely reach out to your... Uh, Nebraska Extension educators um, and and use the resource that's available to you. Lots of field days as well. Coming up, we've got soybean management field days. We'll talk about that on an upcoming show. I'll give you the last word though this week. What else would you like to share with our viewers? Yeah, if you're considering treatments for next year, definitely focus on developing good field histories, taking those good notes this time of year. Uh, you can use resources at cropwatch.unl.edu or search the Crop Protection Network. Now, if you have any questions about potential diseases in your field, you're encouraged to re reach out to your local Nebraska Extension educator, or you can always send those samples in to the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic. Well, that is going to do it for this week's show. We do appreciate you joining us this week on the program. Remember that you can find all the segments posted online under the Market Journal YouTube channel. We hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, 
Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.